That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Cara Denisio. And I'm Dr. David Miller, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you. This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health. This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well. This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan. This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting it all together. This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of health care. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it. And we want you to know it. Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you need to know about. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in uh, to another podcast episode here with uh, Dr. Dave. Um, this week's episode, we talked to Dr. Renata Zambo. Uh, she's a SIBO-focused uh, practitioner, a naturopathic doctor, and we got into the guts pretty pretty deep in this episode. So if you're a patient who suffers from bloating or IBS or other sort of GI disturbances, I think you're going to like this uh, episode. Uh, we come into it or edit from slightly different perspectives, but I think you'll see that there's some wisdom in on all these different approaches and in viewing uh, symptoms such as bloating, uh, constipation, uh, heartburn, etc. So um, please excuse us as we had a couple of technical difficulties. We're trying to work on the internet connection to make it more reliable. So hopefully uh, you can see the wisdom of Dr. Renata and uh, enjoy the content more than the couple little blips of technical difficulties uh, irritate you. They irritate me too, but um, anyway, we do the best we can. So we'll improve our internet connection for uh, next episodes, and for now, enjoy the show. Okay, welcome back to another episode of That Naturopathic Podcast. It's Dr. Dave, and I'm solo today. Well, I'm not really solo. I got the lovely uh, Renata Zambo with me today, and we're going to talk about lots of gut stuff. We're going to miss Kara. We both will miss Kara. Um, right, Renata? We already talked about that. That's right. Yeah. yeah, we're sad she can't be here today. But we're going to talk about guts a lot today because uh, we got a little, we got like a little gut gangster uh, number two here <laughs> in the house. So um, you know how I like to talk about guts, and, and it's sort of fundamental for naturopathic medicine and I think Renata would agree it's sort of fundamental for just getting well uh, from chronic disease and and building wellness. So I'll stop talking and introduce Dr. Renata. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah. So do you want us to tell? Do you want to tell us a little bit maybe about your story? You've been uh, practicing for a few years as a naturopathic doctor. Um, you tell us a little. We've all got a story that sort of led us down the path. Mm. Maybe you could uh, lead us a little bit down that path. Yeah. So for me, I knew I wanted to be a naturopathic doctor really early on in my life. Um, it was actually because my own mom got sick. And it's a long story, but the end of it is wonderful because she ended up completely healthy. And, you know, coming from someone who was on her deathbed, it was really, it was a really huge transition for me to see. And, so that was the kind of the the birthing point of my desire to become a naturopathic doctor. Um, fast forward into second year of naturopathic college, I started experiencing 
some digestive issues and I didn't really know what to do about it and know why it was happening. We hadn't really learned anything through the program that was really helpful for me. Um, but my symptoms continued to get worse and worse and worse to the point where I had extreme fear of food because everything would make me so incredibly bloated and I would be in so much pain. Um, I had a lot of anxiety. I suffered from panic attacks and depression as well. And I think for me, the tipping point was when I was at work and I had to unbutton my pants and unzip them because I was so incredibly bloated. I looked eight months pregnant and it was horrible. It was the worst experience. It was so embarrassing. And that was the point where I was like, I need to figure out what is going on with me. And as I started understanding more and more about you know, the intricacies of digestive health and SIBO, IBS, dysbiosis, all of that, it, I really started to see how rampant this was within so many of my patients. And so I decided to make it my zone of excellence, my area of expertise, where I really wanted to hone in and study and really understand what was going on with gut health and how is it really affecting us locally in the digestive tract, but also systemically. And and then here we are today, right? It's, I think, what 90% of my patients, my patient population is. It's why most people reach out to me because they know that this is where I focus in on. And, you know, you of all people can appreciate how amazing and essential proper gut health is. So mm-hmm. that was, that was the, that, that's been my journey so far. Still growing. Yeah, it's and it's it's so amazing that you can do you know you can do the coursework, you can become a naturopathic doctor, and you still struggle sometimes with with these things, and and it really helps you understand just how complex or or personalized sometimes things have to be when you of all people as a naturopathic doctor still have your own you know things that you're working through at school, right? Yeah, it's it's frustrating because you want to fix yourself. You almost have all the tools. You have. You have all the tools there for you and you don't know how to put them in order. And I think at least when it comes to SIBO, this was true then. It's still true now. They don't teach enough about it in school. So I remember I was hosting like a bracelet making workshop for some fourth year naturopathic students. I was in third year and one of the girls mentioned SIBO and I was like, what is that? And she started Mm -hmm. getting into it and I was like, what is this thing? And why have I never heard about it? It was so crazy. So, um, and and I think even with patients, some of them have heard of SIBO. They're in Facebook groups that are SIBO-focused. Uh, they know something's wrong. They just don't fully understand what's going on there. So I'm hoping that through what I do online and what I do with my patients, I can continue to help that the education grow and just help people help themselves mm-hmm. and help myself, too, in the process. Well, yeah, you know, and you know what might be helpful too is like, you know, I are thrown around the term SIBO. Maybe you could just mm-hmm. sort of define what it is because uh, it's not that well known. But I will say I went to the doctor this this past week. I went to the doctor and he comes up to me and he's like, hey, Dave, what, what do you think of SIBO? And, uh, you know, he, he said, I, I got a friend in internal medicine or whatever who's saying a lot of naturopaths are, are handling some SIBO cases because, you know, everyone pronounces it differently. Um but I just thought it was really cool that this this medical doctor was bringing it up, uh, this thing that, you know, you're heavily focused on. And I never heard about it in school. Um, do you think you could give us a bit of a definition of SIBO or SIBO and, and what you know about it? Absolutely. So SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And as the name implies, we have an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine. Now, the small intestine 
as the name sort of implies, it's it holds a smaller amount of bacteria in comparison to the large intestine. So bacteria, they're very necessary for our ecology, for well, the, the microecology of, of our gut. And we know that we have over 300 trillion bacteria in our body, but bacteria are living organisms. So they consume our food, they consume carbohydrates, and they also can produce their own waste. Um, and that waste usually comes in the form of gas. And so if we have an overabundance of bacteria in the small intestine that are producing a lot of gas, it's going to cause a lot of digestive problems. So individuals with SIBO end up with IBS-like symptoms. So IBS and SIBO, they overlap a lot. And sometimes people ask me, you know, what's the difference between IBS and SIBO? IBS is like saying, I have a headache. It doesn't really... It tells you that you have a collection of symptoms or you have something going on, but it doesn't tell you that root cause. So SIBO for some individuals can actually be the root cause of their IBS. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like the term is well known? Because I, I and I don't know if this is just uh, by virtue of there being a lot more people in the U.S., um, mm -hmm. but I feel like in the U.S. maybe I, I hear more about SIBO rather than uh, patients in Canada, like I've, it's rarely that someone comes to me unless they've seen a naturopath before saying, oh, I think I've got SIBO. What, what's your sort of general understanding of the, the general knowledge uh, out there about SIBO in, at least in Canada and compare it maybe to the U.S.? Yeah. So my belief is that perhaps because of the way the medical system works, they do have access. And by they, I mean, medical doctors tend to have access to possibly more comprehensive testing than the medical doctors here. So I, we're, we're, we can talk about this a little bit later in terms of what kind of testing I use, but uh, stool testing, for example, it's very limited here in terms of what microorganisms your general practitioner is typically looking at. Whereas in the States, a lot of medical doctors are running functional medicine testing, right? And so naturopathic doctors, we do a lot of these functional medicine type tests. We're looking at optimization and um, what's really interesting, I've been studying in a course that is for practitioners to learn about SIBO. I'm pretty much learning from the best. And in this course, we have naturopathic doctors and we have medical doctors. So, you know, I don't know any medical doctors in Canada that have taken the initiative to learn more about something like this. And I really hope that as time passes, we do get more education on it because it's a really big problem. Uh, but I, I just think it's probably the way the medical system is structured and what kind of testing they actually have access to with us having OHIP. It's just more limitations in terms of what the government is covering. So. And what do you what do you think is the most sort of common symptom that so say someone's listening to this or like, what is SIBO? I'm sort of losing you here, Miller. Uh, you know, what's the sort of co most common symptom that you think someone would would have? Because to me, when you said that thing about the, uh, you know, unbuttoning your your pants, that was sort of like the <laughs> classic sort of SIBO picture. Is that is that sort of what you see that most people come in complaining yeah. of, even if they don't know? Yeah. Yeah, you got it. It's bloating. Bloating is the number one symptom that patients report now because. SIBO is going to cause IBS. We can have all types of IBS symptoms. So it can be constipation. So, um, you know, limited and constipation, like we have to define the word, right? It's not just not going to the washroom. It's a difficulty eliminating, not eliminating effectually, sometimes having to use manual ways of, you know, eliminating stool um, and then diarrhea. So more frequent bowel movements, uh, looser stools um, and, 
um, you know, again, like that sometimes with diarrhea, we do get that ineffectual. So like haven't eliminated completely kind of feeling. So mm-hmm. we get, we can see both with SIBO and we can see them interchanging too. So I get a lot of patients will say, um, my stools are mixed. Like I'm getting constipation. I'm, I'm poo stools and I can't pinpoint what, what day I'm going to have, what type of bowel movement and what's triggering it. So that's, that's one side of it. Um, as I mentioned, bloating is one of the biggest hallmark symptoms and bloating can be both visible. So when some people will literally say, I look pregnant, um, and someone might comment like, Hey, your stomach is distended, but you look like you're pregnant, but bloating can also be the internal sensation of distension. So feeling mm-hmm. like, uh, your insides are stretched without visibly looking bloated. And this is usually due to uh, those baroreceptors within the intestines as, as the, the changes in bowel movements and the gas production are contributing to that. We can see other things too, like burping, indigestion, heartburn. So this is, this is really interesting to me because when people are typically saying, you know, I have SIBO and they're going to do the next step, which is get tested for it, they're doing breath testing. And for me, that's not enough. And I think maybe that's where I'm a little bit different from other practitioners who are like treating SIBO mm-hmm. um, because I don't just rely on the breath testing. For me, it's a holistic picture, like tip to tail, what mm-hmm. is going on, because we're going to have factors all throughout the entire digestive tract that if you don't treat those underlying reasons, you're going to still get bacterial overgrowth after you've treated it with your protocol or whatever. Right. I think this is some key stuff that you're you're sort of glazing over there. Uh, can you maybe go into a little bit more of what you're talking about when you say you don't just focus on the breath test, you sort of taking the whole picture into consideration? Can you maybe give us some example of how you look at it a little differently or, or something that sort of illustrates that different or more comprehensive approach? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the digestive tract isn't isolated to the small intestine. We have the mouth, esophagus, stomach with sphincters. We've got the small intestine. We have other valves throughout the large intestine, rectum. So we have to look at each point. So um, you can start with looking at chewing. How well is someone actually chewing their food? Are they eating in a stressed out kind of environment? Um, are they eating while they're in a rush, while they're sitting at their desk working? Uh, when we go down to the stomach, we know stomach acid is absolutely imperative to digestion. Stomach acid not only sterilizes the incoming food from, you know, potentially other microorganisms, but it is also meant to break down protein. And we have some other stuff that happens as well within the stomach. But these two things are really, really important. Um, if we don't have an environment that's acidic enough, we're actually maldigesting protein and that can cause further fermentation within the gut. And we also know that, so when, when we look at the contents that kind of like partially digested food in the stomach, we call that chyme. So as that chyme moves into the small intestine, it's very acidic. So the stomach is really good at tolerating acidity, but the, the small intestine is not. So we now have to neutralize this incoming acidic environment. So that's what actually stimulates the gallbladder to release bile, the pancreas to release digestive enzymes. And these two 
digestive juices are so, so key to continue that digestion process. So if you've got low stomach acid and you now don't get secretion, like you're not getting that stimulation of these digestive juices, again, there's an impaired digestive process that just gets perpetuated throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So you're going to get larger food particles that end up in the small intestine, large intestine, and then they just undergo fermentation, which is going to worsen your symptoms. Um, you talk quite a lot about this, but looking at bowel function, the actual physical manipulation of the viscera and the tissues, which I think is so important because we know that valves can malfunction. They can stay you know, patent. So they're staying open. They're mm-hmm. not closing appropriately, or sometimes we can actually have too much tension in a valve and it's not going to let things through fast enough. So I think having a look at those things. Um, and then finally, I find that individuals who at least have uh, had certain degree of, let's say, constipation throughout their lifetime, mm-hmm. the lower part of the colon that connects right to the rectum, it can get distended. And so it actually needs a stronger stimulus to push out the rest of the stool. So that can be a bit of an impaired area as well. And then we can even talk about, like, how is someone sitting on the toilet? Yeah. You know, so it's it's like there are so many stops along the way in which if there's something not being optimized, you're at risk for having some degree of bacterial overgrowth. Yeah, I think I'll just I'll maybe um, back you up or, or summarize with a couple of things that I, I find myself saying all the time. So um, one of the things is like if there's anything sort of essentially uh, uh, characteristic of the stomach, it's acid. And we have a lot of people who are on antacids, which, which is, I mean, you could have a whole podcast episode about that. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, like you're, like what you're saying, you need this high acid uh, content to break things down properly. And so, uh, yeah, supporting proper stomach function uh, in, involves proper acid. But I think what it gets conflated with is, is uh, acid in the wrong place, which is then brings in your, uh, you brought up the valves. So often that cardiac sphincter that's supposed to keep things moving one way, because really like food should come in and poo should come out and it shouldn't go the other way, you know, at all that. And even in Chinese medicine, we learn the stomach rules descending, right? So it's supposed to be one way. And so some of these valves, when they're incompetent, that's the problem, not so much the definitive characteristic of the stomach being acid. It's the fact that these, uh, valves are, are dysfunctioning. Like you said, sometimes they're patent, they're just open. Um, and then that, that screws up everything down the line because another thing I find myself saying all the time is something you sort of brought up too, which is that, you know, everything sort of depends on the other things doing their job. Uh, as much as the gut is like a complex adaptive system or holism, if people like to lean more to, <laughs> that sort of terminology. It's either, one's very nerdy and one's holistic. So <laughs> point is everything affects everything in these really unpredictable ways. However, at the same time, the, the gut is a linear system. So basically stuff goes in, like I said, it, it goes in through the top and out the bottom. If the, if the job of the organ uh, prior to the next organ is not done properly, then it's, it's bad news for the, for the rest of, of the gut, right? You got it. Exactly. That's actually, that's a really 
uh, important point that we always need to drive home is it's the, the digestive system is unidirectional. Other than the bi-directional relationship between the brain <laughs> and the gut, which we're, you know, could put aside for now. But yeah, it's, it's a one-way system. It's a one-way highway. So uh, if things are going backwards, that's something to pay attention to. Not necessarily just keep suppressing with your antacids and your PPIs. Exactly. Yeah. So that's where those yeah. valves come in. And, and then you can open up the whole, the, another sort of uh, avenue of holism with, with the valves, which are under autonomic uh, control. So then stress, stress becomes a, a big factor in those valves working properly. Like I'm sure, I, I don't know. I, I don't, um, I guess I'm hyper-focused on the structural anatomical evaluation, but when you look at SIBO, you pro- I guess you're probably seeing this too, that stressed out people, do they have more issues with SIBO and sometimes that's where the real money is with SIBO or what do you see with stress? Maybe bring that in. Yeah. You know, Dave, that's so interesting that you mentioned that because so many people and that's when my digestive symptoms started. So I think stress is very much the tipping point. Because as you mentioned, right, the autonomic nervous system, it's so intelligent. I think the body is just such a beautiful thing. And it's really smart because if we look at that fight or flight response, and you know, a lot, I think a lot of us use the whole like being chased by a bear thing, but let's make it more 2021. And, you know, if someone came into my office right now wielding a knife, asking for my AirPods, I think I'd probably, you know, I would just be like, I have to live and save my AirPods. (laughs) So... (laughs) My body is going to do a really intelligent redirection of resources. It's going to send all the blood and all the nutrients to my muscles so I can run away. It's not going to be like, hold on a second. Before we do this one-on-one, can I just use the washroom real quickly? (laughs) It's not going to happen. You know, and other things too. We're not going to have a healthy functioning reproductive system. We're not going to do all the other things that we need to do that happen only in in a relaxed environment. Mm -hmm. So we get we get a slowing down of all these things. We we see lower stomach acid production. We see slowed migrating motor complex, which is a movement pattern in the small intestine. We see slowed peristalsis, uh, movement pattern of the large intestine. But sometimes we do actually get acceleration of it. So some pe- some people that I've worked with, they're the, oh, I got to run to the washroom really quickly mm-hmm. whenever anxiety hits. Whereas some other people will be like, uh-oh, I know I'm not going to go to the washroom now for two days. So the response is quite different person to person however stress is a huge part of it and it absolutely stress management mindset these are things that you have to address in i think any gut healing protocol and if you don't you're missing a huge piece of the puzzle because we need to learn how to deal with that um emotional and ultimately biochemical cascade and and learning how to manage our mind can allow us to maximize the healing process of our digestive system. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. And then it, it sort of becomes um, a perpetuating problematic factor on top, even if it wasn't sort of the instigating. Because, you you know, you, you'll have heard, heard many people where things got worse, like right after massive stress or mm-hmm. uh, another person may say it got uh, it's never well since, uh, say, I was pregnant or never well since an infection. Um, right. So these are different sort of etiologies, which I'm sure you work with. And, and understanding the onset and etiology of things is really important. But what then ends up happening sometimes is um, the gut issues themselves 
cause anxiety or whatever. You can imagine the person with urgency. I see this fairly regularly, like people who have like very little um, resilience from the trigger of, you know, needing to have a bowel movement to it actually happening. Uh, and that could affect your quality of life big time and leave you in a kind of state of anxiety or low level alert, right? So, um, I think it's, I think it's great that you bring that in because the nervous system, it's almost like a parallel path needs to be addressed when you're dealing with what seems like just a gut issue. You have to think of the person with a gut issue in real life and how stressful that could be. Oh, absolutely. I have so many patients that they'll say, I can't go out anywhere unless I have landmark landmarked all of the washrooms. Mm-hmm. Like they cannot physically go grocery shopping unless they know a washroom's there. And I mean, mm-hmm. let's add in COVID into the mix and you can't mm-hmm. go into public restrooms anymore. And imagine the stress of being out in public and then all of a sudden having the urge yeah. to go to the washroom. It's so stressful. Or, you know, I've experienced this. I'm at a wedding and I just want to have a good time. And all of a sudden I'm super bloated from what, who knows why? Cause I, mm-hmm. at some point could, couldn't pinpoint, I felt like I was triggered by everything. You know, I was mm-hmm. eating really healthy. We learn through naturopathic medicine, what a, what a balanced, clean, whole food diet looks like, right? And um, if we talk about just eating real food and, and I was eating real food, I just felt like crap from it. Mm-hmm. So the, the stress of being at a wedding, you know, trying to look good, being in a dress and you're just super bloated and, Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's incredibly, it's incredibly stressful. Some people pass a lot of gas and that in and of itself is embarrassing. Yeah. And I work with people who are just like, I have struggled for my entire life since I was a kid up until now. And they're 45 and it has always affected their quality of life because the digestive system is a pretty, it's got pretty quick turnover. We eat yeah. three times a day, let's say. you eat three times a day of your life that's huge impact on quality of life and happiness and it's going to feed in very much to anxiety and so that's where that like bi-directional relationship comes in it's it's really taking care of yes the physical side of things looking at your food doing maybe some testing some supplements optimizing digestion but then really optimizing your mind so that you know how to anticipate let's say a food trigger and talk yourself through it that was a huge thing for me, learning how to not go down the rabbit hole of rumination when I would get bloated. You know, what did I eat? Was my food, how was my food contaminated? I thought I was so mindful. What could have gone in it? Was it something yeah. that I ate this morning? Was it something I ate last night? Like, what was yeah. it? Was it my supplements? Has it come back? Like, it's just a, it's a spiral. So learning to manage that was actually a really important part of my healing process. And I, I try to teach my patients now to incorporate that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, you brought it up with um, talking about like you're doing good work or what I think you brought this up or earlier it was something about like you may be eating healthy food or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, this is one thing I'm, I find that a lot of people probably can relate to and, and find it super frustrating is often uh, even with the people like with the framework that I work with with the more anatomical structural mm-hmm. viewpoint, um, I think the same thing would happen to you though, where you have these people who are eating really, really well, like the fuel they're putting in and you look at their like diet diary, you're like, damn, that's 
like better than what yeah. I did yesterday. And then <laughs> some of those very foods can be problematic in SIBO or other sort of IBS or other conditions. Can you maybe talk a little bit how, um, you know, even like healthy foods can be problematic for some people? Definitely. It's funny that you mentioned that. I was talking about that today with a patient. It's so frustrating, right? Because you think you're sure. doing all the quote unquote right things, yeah. but you're feeling so bad from it versus some people who can just eat McDonald's and they're fine, which, you know, they're not maybe, but, uh, so there is this classification of foods that we call the FODMAP or higher FODMAP foods. And FODMAP stands for fructosaccharide, oligosaccharide, disaccharide, monosaccharide, and polyols. So they're basically different types of sugars that are a bit more fermentable. And what's challenging is that usually, and I know you've talked about this, the importance of fiber. And I agree, we need fiber. Everybody knows we need fiber, right? We have fiber mm-hmm. products. We know we should get whole grains because they contain fiber and vegetables are high in fiber. It's good for our gut, helps us go to the washroom regularly. But when you have an overabundance of bacteria, particularly in the small intestine, you are more likely to ferment these fibers, these sugars, because that's the easiest fuel source for bacteria. It's carbohydrates. So you will eat things like apples and mushrooms and onions and garlic and whole grain fibers, like whatever, whole wheat bread or whole wheat products. Mm -hmm. And that will actually feed the bacteria more. So you're putting fuel onto the fire and you're going to worsen your symptoms. So when, when doing SIBO work, it's very tricky to navigate this part of it because you want to take out as much of these foods to eliminate symptoms. And I think maybe that's where, again, my mindset differs a little bit from other practitioners who treat patients with SIBO. Typically, they say, no, no, leave all the hot, high FODMAP foods in because we want to feed the bacteria. We want to coax out the bacteria as we kill them off. Mm-hmm. However, when we look at the research and the physiology, when we have bacteria that are actually very active in producing gas, that gas is actually uh, quite damaging to the intestinal lining, and it prevents um, it actually prevents the healing process. It slows it down. So mm-hmm. I actually love pulling out as many of the high FODMAP foods as I can because that significantly reduces symptoms. Mm -hmm. And my philosophy with patients is always, on one hand, yes, let's treat the root cause. As naturopathic doctors, I think that's the biggest kind of philosophy that we all share is trying to, if we can, discover the underlying root cause and fix it. So on one hand, we try to do that. We do all the work that we need to do to do that side. But I think symptom management is just as important. So I always try to balance the two when I'm working with patients. Now, taking out high FODMAP foods, it's a fine line because, um, you know, if you're also trying to do things like go gluten-free and dairy-free and take out processed foods, your diet is very, very narrow. Mm-hmm. And you run the risk of nutritional deficiencies of affecting your thyroid. And I know this firsthand because I did this to myself. So it's <laughs> problematic and you need to, like, navigate that part very tightly so that you don't end up with problems down the road and then have to fix those problems. So the, that's, yeah, that's that on FODMAP foods. Yeah. And so what do you, what do you do about uh, bringing them back in at some point? Like, do you have a strategy with, uh, do you say you are forever uh, condemned to not eating onions and garlic (laughs) and all these awesome foods or what's your strategy sort of long-term? Do you, is it individualized? Dare I say individualization is good or (laughs) what do you do? Uh, 
It's a combination to be. So as I take people through their protocols, I'm looking for 90% improvement in symptoms. When I know I've hit the 90%, then I know I can progress them. Uh, I try to do a transitional diet when I can. It's actually called the Cedars-Sinai diet. So Dr. Pimentel is one of the leading researchers in SIBO, and he came up with this um, through, I believe, the Cedars-Sinai Hospital in America. And it actually, it's it's a cross between a low FODMAP and like a paleo diet. Mm-hmm. It, it's a bit more inclusive. So I try to use that as a transitional diet when possible. But my goal is to add foods back in as quickly as possible. Yeah. So again, diet turnovers pretty quickly. I think for, for most of my patients, I'm trying to add in one food a day if they feel comfortable with it. Um, if they have flare ups, then we pull that food out and then we try to uh, add it in a little bit later. But yeah, the goal is definitely to add foods back in and as many of them as possible because it's a really important part of a balanced diet. Yeah, and, for and mental sure. And sustainability. Yeah, exactly. Like sustainability yeah. of a diet is, is going to be somewhat related to like how restricted it is, right? Absolutely. The more restrictive it is, the harder it is. I think now, with the current state of the world, it makes it a little bit easier because most people are working from home and they're not really going out socially. So I think that has improved compliance significantly, but it's still really hard. It's such a mind game. Changing your diet in any shape or form is challenging. You know, mm-hmm. for some people, just taking out gluten in and of itself is very difficult. So when we talk about something like onions and garlic, which are as you said, so delicious, and they're staples of almost every cuisine. Mm-hmm. You're really, you're really changing the way that people feel about their food. And I, I find that most people, they experience a sort of like existential crisis when they first start <laughs> doing a low FODMAP diet. They like feel really down. They're very like angry at the world because they can't eat like these amazing things. It's yeah. tough. It's a mind game for sure. But I'd say, you know, the, the standard you're setting for yourself, and I'm not always into numbers and stuff, but if you're standing, if you're setting a standard of you want like a 90% improvement, uh, that's really high as a practitioner. That's awesome. And I, I think if you're going for that, I like your idea of sort of parallel paths of, because uh, I do something similar too. It's like trying to, let's, okay, is ideally let's get as close to the root as we can. Um, yeah. You know, like, look, I, I, I'm into philosophy and I'm, I'm pretty sure that we don't know the root of, all things at all, but we can get as close as we can, um, at, which is a very noble pursuit. But if you, in doing so, you're seeking for that, seeking that, you don't sort of help the person uh, out of their state where they're in a, you know, you have your patients that come in are like, they're frazzled, they're depleted, they have low energy, and, and you got to do what you can just to get them, like, to prop them up a bit and make them feel better. And I think um, your strategy with the FODMAPs um, makes a lot of sense in that way. It's a bit of like short-term difficulty, but it's it's a, it's quite a reliable, I would say, intervention. Yeah, it definitely has. Um, sorry, <clears throat> it definitely has efficacy, but it's not a sustainable diet long-term. So the it, it's it's a challenge to really navigate it in a safe way. And, and yeah, that 90%, it's a pretty high standard that means the process through a SIBO protocol, it's a very individualized. 
And I can never guess how people are going to progress through it. So one person, it might be, you know, four weeks. Another person might take 12 weeks. It might be longer. So I try to go based off of what feedback I'm getting from the patient and their progress through it. And the idea is to try and go far enough that you prevent backsliding. Because if you cut off the treatment too early, you run the risk of essentially reinfection. Now, you sort of you sort of touched on this, like the etiology of why things like this happen. And I think a really important thing to understand is that the migrating motor complex, which, as I mentioned, it's it's the movement pattern of the small intestine. It's a really, really crucial limiting factor in treating SIBO and also why SIBO often arises in individuals. So the the migrating motor complex I kind of describe it as your kitchen sink. So it is a, it's a forward propulsion type of movement and it's meant to clear out bacteria and digested food as quickly as possible. So it's kind of like when you eat dinner, you put your dishes in the sink, you typically wash it right away. If you have damage to the migrating motor complex, those dishes are piling up in the sink. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what happens with the bacteria. And often this happens if we, in terms of damage to the small intestine, it usually happens due to some sort of bacterial infection. So I always ask my patients when we're doing their initial intakes, you know, have you had food poisoning? Have you had traveler's diarrhea? Have you had the stomach flu? Any sort of gastroenteritis where some sort of microorganism can come in. We know that they actually secrete a toxin called the CDTB toxin. And this actually damages the uh, neurons in the small intestine. So these neurons act both as motor and sensory. So mm-hmm. because it's damaging the motor part, we now actually affect the movement. So we're, we're slowing that migrating motor complex. And that for me is a really important component to understand because if there's damage, then we wanna go in and make sure that we're, we're constantly keeping an eye on doing what we call prokinetics. So promoting the movement of the small intestine and at the same time, trying to use nutrients that can actually help heal the nerves as much as possible to restore normal function. Because mm-hmm, you, you got a nervous system in the in that gut of yours, right? So you do, I mean, yeah. Yeah, pretty critical part. Um, the uh, the nervous system of the gut. I mean, do you, do you want to bring that in a little bit? Do you what What's your understanding of that and how it fits into to SIBO? Like the enteric nervous system? Yeah, just like I don't know if everyone knows. Uh, some Maybe some uh, listeners have a really good idea, but basically you have like a nervous system in your gut, right? Yeah, and it it a lot of us call it the second brain or pe- people yeah. call it the second brain. Um, and for me, that's a, where a lot of that mind-gut connection comes in. Um, yes. We have a very dense network of nerves that innervate the, uh, I think the fascia, the different organs of the digestive system, and there's a constant relay of signals, which is, I think, why stress can so heavily impact the digestive tract. But, mm-hmm. you know, for me, the digestive system is such a, it's such a uh, finicky, like, collection of organs. I feel like it's just so sensitive and can get irritated mm-hmm. by so many things which for me is why 
incoming pathogens, whether it's other bacteria or yeast or parasites, the way that their byproducts can affect the function of those nerves, it's very, very crucial. And we need the constant signaling of movement yeah. in the intestines. And, and the nerves play a really, really important role, important role there. Absolutely. Movement is so important. Like if you, I, I think if you talk to any sort of uh, chiropractor or osteopath, they, they understand mm-hmm. on the more macro level of the body, like movement is life. And uh, as a visceral sort of guy, I know like without the diaphragm moving everything, uh, it's not good. Like uh, organs are supposed to move. Like, and I don't think we're sort of taught that importance in school that organs yeah. need to move. And my simple analogy is where are you going to get your water from a waterfall or a swamp? And so, you know, that's that's sort of how I try and hammer home the idea of movement, even in the gut, like you're talking about with the MMC. Uh, mm-hmm. Things got to move like things. You don't want to swamp. You don't want to be swampy. <laughs> you don't want to be swampy. Swampy is not good. Swampy is SIBO. <laughs> swampy is SIBO, which actually, um, you know, makes me think of the liver. The liver is an interesting organ because we know it's obviously a digestive organ. It's where a lot of our, you know, everything gets processed through the liver. Um, But the liver is, for me, kind of like the bridge between the digestive, part of the bridge between the digestive system and the rest of the body. So things like hormones, they also get processed through the liver. And we know that slower liver functioning or a sluggish liver can lead to some hormonal issues or whenever we're looking to correct hormonal issues. And, you know, this is why we need Dr. Kara here. Um, <laughs> we have the, we have, you know, PCOS and estrogen dominance and those can, we need to work on the liver to do those things. So we, we need to actually look at how our swampy digestive system can start to trickle into the rest of our body as well. So a lot of my patients that have SIBO, it's not just SIBO. They've also got brain fog mm-hmm. and they have eczema and they have acne and they have thyroid issues and, 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 and it's a lot of other stuff too, because as I like to tell my patients, the, the digest, the, the intestines by nature, they're a porous organ. They're meant for absorption mainly, right? So we already have these little portals where nutrients and things can pass through. Now, if we have a really I like your swampy word. We have a really swampy, you know, digestive tract. If our intestines are so bogged down and they're so inflamed, we actually compromise the integrity and those little ports now become larger and we can absorb any inflammatory protein that caused local inflammation in the gut is now getting absorbed back in the digestive tract. You know, we have yeast candida that was in the gut and now we absorb it and we've got toenail fungus and, you know, so it's we we have to look at the connection there between the systemic symptoms as well as the digestive ones. Yeah, cool. So doc, let's talk about maybe one or two sort of I always like to do this if I can, like a couple of home run things that you know, you see walk in and you see what they've tried, you see different strategies and and all that and you you have a couple of uh I don't know, maybe a couple of patients like this that you're like when you see them, you know you're probably likely going to get a good result. Do you have any sort of uh, go-tos like home runs that you often, I know everything's individualized. Trust me. I know as much as you, but yeah. you know, it's nice sometimes to have these, these, uh, these sort of things that you're like, I think it's pretty likely that this will help. Do you have any, mm-hmm. any sort of, uh, basic recommendations for some things that you sort of hit out at the park every time? 
For sure. So we talked about, um, we talked about stomach acid and I find a lot of my patients have low stomach acid. So I usually start with an apple cider vinegar challenge. And once we have confirmed that they have low stomach acid, then I'm usually putting them on some sort of betaine supplement short term. And I find that this helps quite a lot uh, because it helps with that. It helps with, you know, digestion quite high up in the gut. So that would be number one. Number two is probably some sort of digestive enzyme. Again, most patients, they have really slow release of digestive enzymes and having the extra man, I was going to say manpower, having the extra support to actually break down food when they already have such compromised digestion, it actually helps alleviate their symptoms. So those would be kind of higher up to aid digestion. Um, I do find that for most people, oil of oregano is actually really awesome. It's not just specific to the small intestine and can actually address everything from H. pylori to candida to bacteria. So I like to incorporate that if and when appropriate. As you said, it Mm -hmm. it is individualized. And I find that um, different presentations, so if someone's more constipated versus more, has more diarrhea, I tend to use different botanicals. But Oil of oregano is usually one that I am utilizing. Um, and then I often recommend castor oil packs, castor oil compresses. Cool. Um, yeah, because it really old modulates. School. Old school, <laughs> but like my patients love it. And even when they don't have symptoms, they use it nightly. It's some, it's pretty much a must for all of my patients. They all love it. So I, I kind of just tell people to rub the castor oil directly onto their skin. Uh, I find it does absorb quite well and they don't have need to worry about staining sheets or clothes or anything like that. But just rubbing castor oil all over from the ribs down to the pelvis, um, like the hip, the hip bones and putting a hot water bottle or a heating pack over just hanging out watching TV or doing their nighttime routine. Um, it does modulate inflammation and liver detoxification. And when we're talking about, you know, having IBS being bloated, just kind of having your insides feeling uncomfortable and hurting, it can be very soothing in bringing down that that pain. Sometimes I'll even say adding one drop of peppermint essential oil into that can also help. Um, cool. Yeah, I think also peppermint oil is great for sphincters too. So relaxing that ileocecal valve. Yeah, that that one is is key. I could talk about that one for a long time. It's a pretty important one. Um, just sort of, again, back you up with what you said. Uh, Dr. Verna Hunt, uh, we're, we're going to have her on for an elder series in, in the mm-hmm. next uh, five five episodes or so. And she talks about castor oil a lot. And uh, she says, you apply it from boobs to pubes. So yeah. if, you, if you need a way of remembering yeah. it or you want patients, trust me, they'll remember when you say that. So anyway. That's so much that better than ribs to hip bones. <laughs> ribs to hips. That'll Leave it to Verna. She's been practicing longer than I've been alive, so she knows her That's stuff. That's incredible. Castor oil, it's powerful stuff. Yeah. If you're constipated, you could drink it, but drink at your own risk. Yeah. No, it's it's a beautiful old school remedy. I uh, my my only uh, well not the only, the issue I have with it often is c- compliance, right? Because then everyone's so damn busy, right? And it's like now you have to sit down with this. Uh, thing on which is probably exactly what they need you know like slow down that's the funny part it's exactly what they need but there's resistance to it a lot of the time 
Dave, it's non-negotiable for me. Not a girl. Tell them. I'm like, if you want to get better, you will do what I say, and I'll make you feel great. And they're like, okay, fine. I trust you. I like it. I like it. Good for you. Okay, so what I want to do now is is what me and Kara usually do is just say, like, what's sort of one take? Because life's full of so much information and overload and every now and, we, and, uh, and everything. We've gone through so many good things that if people mm-hmm. listened, I'm sure they've picked up some little uh, nubs of goodness there. But if there was one sort of take-home message that you want the listener uh, to hear, uh, what's it, what's it got to be from, from what we've talked about today? don't suffer for too long. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that's a take-home message, but I think... Well, you're giving hope, least, right? You're, you're saying there's I'm, hope. There's a different... There there's is hope. hope with a different approach. There is, yes. Um, I think that the body is really, really intelligent, and there is completely a light at the end of the tunnel for you, and if you're struggling with digestive issues and you're looking for a way to feel better, there is a way. Just find someone who knows what they're doing and can guide you through that process safely. And you can absolutely get to a place where you feel less bloated, where you're going to the washroom more regularly and your life just feels that much more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just the approach, right? It doesn't, it does, it's, it's sometimes, um, Conventional medicine does so well in so many areas, but when it comes to managing chronic digestive issues, the approaches most often are not uh, applied really, really uh, successfully, I think, to the average person. So then you get hopeless, right? Because I'm sure you've seen this. Like I guess I've been practicing almost 12 years, uh, and I've seen a lot of people come to me, and it's usually via other uh, unsuccessful sort of approaches, right? Or, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe they've been, uh, they've been told to, to do something quite, you know, heroic medicine. They need a surgery or whatever. Meanwhile, yeah. they haven't just like looked at their diet and taken some fiber. Um, so yeah, like I think it's key for people to understand and that's part of the podcast. That's why I'm so, I love having, um, naturopaths like you on because we can sort of say, look, we haven't, done it great so far in in a few ways but there are other approaches and if you you do those approaches properly you can have hope and if we don't have hope mm-hmm. um it's it's hard to you know get into anything so i think your message is hope i like it okay so um thank you so much for the talk it was awesome uh to to learn of a, a sort of I think it's like an evolved view of SIBO or a really sort of comprehensive view that integrates uh, SIBO. And I think it's really important and it's not known enough by patients. So thanks for bringing that to our awareness. Now, where can, if people want to know more about the sort of science that you're dropping, where can they, where can they hit you up, find you? Find me on Instagram, Dr. Renata Zambo. That's D-R-R-E-N-A-T-A-Z-A-M, like Mary. And uh, a lot of people will reach out to me. I'm in my DMs a lot, sending voice notes. So if you guys have questions, if you want to learn more, please head over there and follow me. And please, if you're coming from this podcast, let me know. Say hello. We'd love to meet you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, my fellow uh, gut gang. I don't know if you want. I'm too old now, I think, to be a gut gut gangster. Let's do it. Can we start a club? (laughs) 
I might have to move to the gut whisperer now. I'm 41, you know, and it's it's a little bit more appropriate. But anyways, Renata, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. And uh, I wish you and your patients the most of success. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me here. It was amazing. All right.